0: This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Assalamu alaykum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa 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 so, alhamdulillah, it's hard to believe it has been uh, a year and a half since we had this gathering live in the Masjid alhamdulillah and we ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to allow us to gather frequently. Remembering him and learning about his religion and getting close to him and getting close to the Messenger. Allahumma ameen. And of course, we are restarting the firsts, which was the series that was ongoing up until Ramadan. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept our Ramadan and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allahumma Ramadan, Allah send us the next Ramadan. Allahumma amin. So here we are and we are in the biography of one of the most important people in Islam, who a lot of people don't develop a deep connection to until they go to Al-Madinah. So I'm gonna make another dua, may Allah grant us a Hajj or Umrah soon that is accepted, Allahumma Ameen. If you go to Madinah, you visit shuhada' Uhud, the martyrs of Uhud, and instantly, you connect to Hamza radiAllahu ta'ala Anhu. Every time you go there and the guide tells you about the way that the events of Uhud unfolded, when you are there, you will connect to Hamza radiallahu ta'ala However, many times, we underestimate who he was and the role that he played because of how early he died in Islam, and I'm just going to start off with this. This is a man that some of the ulama said had he lived, he would have likely been one of the khulafa. He would have likely been one of Khulafa ar rashidin He would have likely been one of the Caliphs. So that tells you enough that he was considered from the best of the best of the Sahaba of the Prophet in his love for Allah, in his love for the Messenger in his courage, in his sincerity, in his wisdom, in his guidance, in his leadership skills. This man could have been one of Khulafa al rashidin had he lived long enough because that was the rank that the Sahaba understood that he had amongst them. So this is Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu Asadullah wa Rasulihi, the Lion of Allah and his Messenger, and Sayyid shuhada the master of the Shuhada. This tells you enough, by the way, when we talk about how people will be ranked on the Day of Judgment and we know we have the Anbiya, the Prophets, and the Siddiqoon, the People of Truth, and we have the Shuhada, and we have the Martyrs. Imagine all of the virtues that you read about the Shuhada all of the virtues that you read about the martyrs and the Prophet ﷺ said their master, their leader on the day of judgment is this man Hamza ta'ala, anhu, standing representing the rank of the shuhada the rank of the martyrs coming forth before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to receive his mighty reward. Hamza ta'ala, anhu, uh, as we we talk about him his nickname Asadullah, of course, the Lion of Allah, and Sayyid Al-Shuhada, the Master of the Martyrs, the Leader of the Martyrs. His kunya was Abu Ammarah, so he had a few sons uh, that would all pass away before him and he would leave behind him only a daughter by the name of Umama, we have spoken about her when we talked about Ja'far So if you go back in the series and you you listen to the lecture about Ja'far then you will see the story of his daughter, his one descendant that survived him, Umama Now, one of the things that we talk about often as we're going through this series is the meaning of the names. When you name your children, have a reason for the way that you are naming them, right? We live in an era where people just find something that sounds cute and modern, whatever that means, throw it on your child and say, this is the name of my child. And if you remember, we talked about Abu Talib and SubhanAllah, the way that he named his children. So Banu Hashim in particular, it seems that even in the days of ignorance, when they named their children, they had special names special reasons and intentions aniyah, for the way that you name your children so al-Abbas عنه, and Hamza عنه, both of their names mean lion actually mean asad Abbas the arabs say is when the lion is roaring before it attacks its prey and so what is the, the lion superior at or what is the lion doing and I know that uh, some of the kids are gonna love this, especially Abdullah, my son, because he loves animals, right? But they talk about the lion's ability to scope out its prey and the way that the lion even paces its roars and the, and the noise that it makes. Superior wisdom, it knows how to stake out its prey. And so that speaks to the, uh, the calculated uh, way that the lion paces itself before it jumps on its prey. Al-Abbas means that. The Asad, the lion, يُزَمْجِرُ when the, when the lion is roaring, when the lion is about to attack, when the lion is scoping out its prey. Hamza refers to the lion أَمْسَكَ بِلَحْمِ الْفَرِيسِ Whenever the lion has attacked its prey and it is starting to tear into the prey وَأَخَذَ يُقَطِعُهَا فَهُوَ حَمزة The time when it's eating and feasting on its prey, that means hamza And by the way, usama refers to post, <laughs> post prey. So all of these names actually in the Arabic language refer to the lion. So Hamza refers to the strength, right? The lion when it's showing its superior strength. SubhanAllah how it matches Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he was named Hamza, which also means a lion as it is feasting on its prey. So it speaks to his his build, it speaks to his strength. And of course, what was he known for? Before Islam, very strong, uh, tall, strong, handsome, popular, um, loved, a warrior, a hunter, an archer, one of courage, all of the youth looked up to him, everyone wanted to be him, so every time he came into the town, people would come around him, they made legends about his strength, and his particular hunting skills, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu liked to hunt the animals that no one else could hunt. Amongst them, by the way, lions. So Hamza knew how to tame and and, and hunt lions himself. So everything about him, SubhanAllah, represents a lion and he is the lion of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So Hamza was a skilled wrestler. He was a skilled fighter, a skilled archer, a skilled hunter. And he had, they described him, they said he walked with pride. There was a, a pride in the way that he walked. And this was something that uh, was especially known to the Arabs before Islam, right? There was an arrogance to their walk, uh, especially the royals amongst them. So Hamza ta'ala anhu had a very proud walk, okay? This is the physical description of Hamza ta'ala anhu, and this is who he would be in his society. And it matches, of course, everything that is known about Hamza ta'ala anhu, uh, in our memory, in the Muslim memory. Uh, from a family perspective, of course, he's from Banu Hashim. He is the paternal uncle of the Prophet Two of the paternal uncles of the Prophet embraced Islam. Two of them did not embrace Islam. Who are the two paternal uncles of the Prophet that embraced Islam? It's nice to have a live audience again. Abbas and Hamza. Who are the two that did not embrace Islam? Abu Lahab and Abu Talib, right? Even though they were very different in the role that they played in the seerah. So Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu is one of the two paternal uncles to embrace Islam. And he's the only one to embrace Islam amongst the first because we know that Al-Abbas would be much later on in Al-Islam. So Hamza is the only one who embraces Islam that early. And if you remember, there was an aunt of the Prophet that was extremely close to Hamza. She loved him so much, and she embraced Islam when he embraced Islam. And we did an episode about her. Does anyone remember her name? Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib. The mother of who? Come on, someone make me happy. Who? Zubair. Az-Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu. the mother of Az-Zubair. May Allah be pleased with them. Safiya was the maternal aunt of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, very close to Hamza radiallahu anhu. When Hamza embraced Islam, she embraced Islam too. So this is Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu in that regard. Uh, now his closeness in age to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam makes him unique in another way. He really was not like an uncle to the Prophet Sallallahu as much as he was like a brother to the Prophet Sallallahu And one narration says that uh, Amina uh, and, and Abdullah, the parents of the Prophet Sallallahu got married in the same gathering as Abdul Muttalib and Hala Bint Wahib, the mother of Hamza. So I'm going to say that again. Abdullah married Amina, the 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 parents of the Prophet got married in the same gathering as Abdul Muttalib married the mother of Hamza RadiAllahu ta'ala Anhu And so that's why some of the scholars say that they were the same age and If not the same age extremely close in age the Prophet and Hamza RadiAllahu ta'ala Anhu and on top of that they were both fed from the same wet nurse and her name was Thuwayba radiallahu ta'ala anha. So Thuwayba fed both Hamza and the Prophet sallallahu Therefore, they were brothers in Lila'a. They were brothers through that nursing. So they, he is his uncle, he is his brother. Uh, Hala bint Wuhaib the mother of Hamza is actually the, the cousin of Amina, the mother of the Prophet sallallahu So he's the second cousin of the Prophet sallallahu through the mother's side. Extremely close in this regard. And if you, if you go back to the episode we had about Um Habiba عنها, uh, you'll remember that when Hamza anhu passed away there was a discussion about who would take care of his daughter and one of the suggestions was that the Prophet would marry uh, his daughter and the Prophet said that he is my brother, her father is my brother for Thawayba had nursed both of us when we were children. Uh, one other interesting uh, tidbit that comes from the seerah and there's no way to authenticate this as a hadith but it comes in the books of seerah is that Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a witness to the marriage of the Prophet and Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. he was one of, the, uh, one of the witnesses from the Prophet's side. So he was there at the wedding of the Prophet he fed with the Prophet he was around the Prophet throughout his entire life, extremely close and extremely beloved to the Prophet So the question is, why didn't Hamza just embrace Islam right away, right? You know, you're, you're reading about the, uh, the family of the Prophet as he called them to Islam first, why so late? Why did Hamza not embrace Islam right away? The ulama mention a few things, the scholars say first and foremost, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu was rarely in Mecca. He was always out in the desert hunting something, doing something, exploring something. He was the man of adventure, okay? So he was not really in the city. While other people would do tijara and they would buy and sell and trade, and Hamza radiallahu anhu was kind of disconnected from city life in Mecca and what other people were doing, the tribal affairs of Banu Hashim. He was just the guy that would go out, he would learn all of these different things. You know, uh, think about a person who is so into their craft, into their sports, it's as if nothing in the world counts. Nothing else in the world matters. That's Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu with his archery, with his hunting. He was never really in Mecca. And, you know, surely when you actually look through the incidents of the Prophet صَلَّى calling Banu Hashim, Hamza radiallahu anhu is nowhere to be found. He's never really in those gatherings. His name never even comes up. So that's one thing. The other thing is the Ulema say, Hamza was just not a person who really cared much about religion as, as a whole. Right? He's busy with his hunting. We know by the way that Hamza radiAllahu anhu used to drink a lot of alcohol because before the prohibition of khamar there are incidents of his drinking. In fact, even after the battle of Badr, an incident of him drinking alcohol because the prohibition of alcohol came after Badr. Okay, so he really was not into deen, like I I love the Prophet I love my my nephew, I love my brother, but this religion stuff, I'm not interested, I'm going to keep on hunting, I'm going to keep on working on my archery. Didn't really care much about dunya and akhira, those concepts, none of that really clicked with him, right? So the point is, is that what's very clear is he was distant from it all, both physically and mentally, not really into the entire discussion, of religion. Now enter the incident of his Islam. How did he become Muslim then? Abu Jahl taunted the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and was increasing in his torture of the Prophet Sallallahu and his persecution of the Muslims as he saw that he wasn't able to, to root out Islam by the torture of his followers. So when you look at Abu Jahl, Abu Jahal goes one by one and he, you know, he, he's a tyrant and he's a coward, but he goes one by one right with the classes. So he starts off with who? The weakest followers of the Prophet ﷺ. And of course the first murder victim of Abu Jahl was who? Sumayyah radiallahu ta'ala anha, and of course uh, Yasir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the first shuhada, and then the torture of Abu Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, the torture of those types of people. Then he brings it closer and closer and closer until finally Abu Jahl, moves from verbal abuse of the Prophet to starting to get physical with the Prophet as well. So this is a point where Abu Jahl is increasing in his tughiyam. He's increasing in the way that he is starting to oppress the Prophet and the early Muslims. He's getting more aggressive with them. And in fact, before this incident, Abu Jahl grabbed a stone and he went to the Kaaba, and the Prophet ﷺ was praying in front of the Kaaba, and he was walking with a stone. Imagine, you know what he said he wanted to do? He said, I'm gonna crush his head while he's in sujood. You know, when a person is a madman like that and he doesn't think properly because of how he's deceived by his own strength, he said, I'm gonna go and I'm actually gonna kill him. Today I just woke up and I decided, you know what? I'm sick of him, I'm going to go kill him. And he goes to the Kaaba, and as he's going to the Kaaba to crush the Prophet ﷺ, Suddenly, he drops the stone, he looks, his eyes get wide, and then he screams and he runs. People are looking around like, what just happened? So Abu Jahl, he says, that when I went to kill the Prophet ﷺ, or to, to step on him, to hurt him, the Prophet ﷺ, he finished his salah, he said, "Lo fa'ala." If he would have done so, لَأَخَذَهُ Jibril Jibreel would have killed him on the spot. Jibreel ﷺ was ready to kill Abu Jahl on the spot if he would have tried to harm the Prophet sallallahu and Abu Jahal said that I saw a trench of fire in front of me right as I was about to kill the Prophet sallallahu and this is what the ulama mentioned some of them mentioned the ayat let him call out to his associates we will call Allah says we will summon the guardians of hellfire the angels who guard hellfire. So Abu Jahl saw the angels in front of him and he saw a trench of fire and it it caused him to panic and he ran away. Did that make him repent? No. He went right back to oppressing the Prophet because he convinced himself that even though he had heard the Quran, and this is important by the way when you see that Allah really established a hujjah against these people, a proof against these people. He heard the Quran, he admitted that it was miraculous in private. He admitted that the Prophet's character was superior in private. He admitted all of these things about the Messenger in private, but at the same time Abu Jahl was willing to die for his tribe. This was about Banu Makhzum versus Banu Hashim. My tribe versus his. I cannot acknowledge he's the Messenger of Allah because then his tribe gains the upper hand over my tribe. So he continues to harass the Prophet So one day. He goes to the Prophet ﷺ in the Kaaba. He starts to push him around, and Abu Jahl throws a nasty insult at him in front of the people. Very nasty insult. Now realize that you know the Arabs had these red lines of sorts when it came to like cursing a person's family. So he said something that had some asabiya in it, some sort of insult to his family that was embedded in the insult to the Prophet ﷺ. And none of the tribesmen of the Prophet were around to defend him. What, what, what used to happen is that Banu Hashim, Banu Muttalib, the tribesmen of the Prophet, even those that were not Muslim, they would stand up for him if someone tried to harass him because that was their duty. They weren't dutiful to Allah, but they were dutiful to Muhammad as a person of their tribe. So this time Abu Jahl really, you know, looked cowardly, he looked bad in front of the people, because he noticed the Prophet had no one around him from his tribe, so he used that as an opportunity to particularly insult him using his family. So he did so, and some of the people saw it, and they didn't like it. That was a bad look, right? Hamza happens to be coming back into town. So think about yourself sitting around the Kaaba, Here's what Hamza anhu was known to do. Hamza anhu would hunt all these exotic animals. He would come back, the people, the youth in particular would rush him, right? If they could get his autograph, they would. Everyone would rush Hamza anhu, And he, would, he was a very social person. He'd go to the Kaaba. And he'd sit in the various circles around the Kaaba, people hanging out at that time around the Kaaba, having their conversations, the tribesmen, they would invite Hamza anhu to sit with them. He would sit with them for some time. He would distribute some of the, the meat that he had that he had slaughtered and hunted on the outskirts of Mecca, catch up with people and things of that sort. So Hamza ta'ala anhu comes back from a hunting trip, which is very like Hamza as he's coming back he goes straight to the Kaaba to do his thing do his usual routine and this woman comes out to him and she is from the family of Abdullah ibn Judd'an uh, she's a female servant from the tr- from the family of Abdullah ibn Juda'an, and she lives around Safa and she witnessed the incident of Abu Jahl humiliating the Prophet so she goes to Hamza تعالى, عنه, and in a way starts to say to him like, you know, how, how are you okay with this? You're coming here and you're demonstrating your bravery, you're showing how proud you are, but at the same time, you know, your nephew was treated this way and you did nothing about it. Hamza anhu, said, what do you mean? And she relayed to Hamza ta'ala, anhu, the entire incident. Hamza ta'ala, anhu, said, Awa qad faal? did he really do that? She said, yes. Hamza said, did the Prophet did Muhammad my nephew respond to him? She said no, the Prophet was dignified. He never responded to the insults of the people. And Hamza became even more enraged. He said, Not a single person had the decency to stand up for my nephew and respond to Abu Jahl. And she said no. So Hamza goes marching towards the gatherings around the Ka'bah. The way that he's described is that the anger was in his face and he was sweating out of anger. I mean you saw the redness in his face, he was raging, he was fuming, he's walking past everyone and they knew something was wrong. He wasn't greeting anybody, he's walking straight to Abu Jahl. People are getting in the way and they're trying to say, what's going on Hamza? What happens? Hamza radiallahu anhu, goes straight to Abu Jahl right amongst his clans, uh, amongst his clansmen, amongst his tribesmen, amongst the Benul Makhzum So he has no fear. I don't care if your whole tribe is around you. I don't care how big you are, how strong you think you are. He takes his kos, which is his bow, and he punches him with his bow on his hand, right in the middle of his head. Okay, that, now when Hamza punches you, <laughs> that's a knockout punch every time. Okay, if, that, if Abu Jahl is a man who is the size of Umar bin Khattab عنه, So you read about the size of Umar عنه, Abu Jahl was that size physically, huge man, tyrant, a Fir'aun, right? The Pharaoh of this Ummah If that was a, a smaller person when Hamza عنه, punched him, that could have killed him Right? But because it's Abu Jahl, he survived but his head split open right away and the blood started to flow from his head Hamza عنه, doesn't care about the scene that he's making he stands on top of him and he says, Atashtumu Muhammadan. You little, you know, starts to call him names. You dare insult Muhammad. And then in the, in, the, in the midst of him talking down to Abu Jahl, he's literally standing on top of him. He says, Atasubbuhu wa ana ala wa aqulu ma You dare curse him? When I am on his religion, I say what he says. Right? He doesn't even know what he says, he doesn't know anything about Islam. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to call it, right? But I'm on his religion and I say what he says just because he knows that would make Abu Jahl mad. And that's part of his war cry at the moment. Now when he does that, Banu Makhzum gets up and they're about to attack Hamza. Abu Jahl was a smart man, right? He's, he's, he's foolish in his rejection of Islam, but what was his nickname before Islam? Abu al-Hakam, father of wisdom. He's manipulative, he's controlling, he knows how, I mean there's a reason why he rose to that position in society, it wasn't all his strength, right? He knew how to play people, he knew how to play these tribal lines. Abu Jahl sees what is about to happen here, and he knows that if Hamza turns against us, we're in trouble. Because up until this point, there is no powerful person that embraced Islam. No warrior, no one, no one who held the status of a person like Hamza anhu had embraced Islam, which is why Abu Jahl could pick on the Muslims the way that he would. You had some wealthy people, some people that were considered you know, somewhat noble by their standards, but he knows that if I let this go, if this breaks loose, I'm in trouble. So Abu Jahl right away, even though he just got popped by Hamza ta'ala anhu, while the blood is still coming from his head, he stands up and he says, he says, no, no, no. He says, everyone stop, calm down. He says, he's right, I went too far with his nephew. And he, he says, uh, He said, you know, leave him alone, because I really did insult his nephew with an insult I should not have insulted him with. Right, so Abu Jahal is trying to play now, you know, a, a person who's apologetic, I'm sorry, you know, let's let's calm things down. Since when does Abu Jahal want to de-escalate? Right? That should tell you everything about how much he feared the Islam of the likes of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he knows that Hamza probably just said what he said, and he was right in the moment of anger. He wasn't really a Muslim. Come on, he didn't care about religion. And he wants to stop this before it gets out of hand. So Abu Jahal de-escalates. Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He you know he leaves in that state. He doesn't say a word after that. He doesn't punch him again. He doesn't fight Ben he goes back home. Hamza said, I got home. And he actually relayed that night. He said, And I was, I was so upset with myself, confused, conflicted. I didn't know what to do. Because he said, Shaitan came to him and tried to talk him out of it. Like, oh, you, you're playing with religion and this and that. And you're, what about your forefathers? So he started to give him, he heard the whispers of the rhetoric of Shaitan. What about your forefathers and Abdul Muttalib? And you've shamed your forefathers and your family. He said at the same time, did I really just accept the religion of my nephew or not? So he, he said he did not sleep that night. Now Hamza ta'ala anhu said he believed in Allah, he believed in a God because he had that fitrah. So he knew the idols were there, he wasn't a particularly religious person, <coughs> but he believed in Allah. So he said, I asked Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, I asked Allah to put guidance in my heart, to guide me to what was right, to allow something to happen, to settle it. If, if this was what I was supposed to be doing, then oh Allah, right, and, and again, to him, the idols are gods, but there's one supreme God, so oh Allah, just let it settle in my heart. And SubhanAllah, this is a great lesson, by the way, in Qadr, a great lesson in divine decree. <laughs> you know, think about this situation, how Allah used Abu Jahl, who feared Islam growing, right? To bring about the religion, to bring about Islam in the heart of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Right, think about that divine decree, you know, Abu Jahal thought he was getting a leg up on the Prophet Sallallahu when he insulted the Prophet Sallallahu but what ended up happening was he would be the means by which Hamza ta'ala anhu would embrace Islam. So Allah allowed him to insult the Prophet Sallallahu as a means of guidance for Hamza anhu to become the most powerful aid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and by the way there was an, a unique asabiyyah to this, a tribalism to this who insulted the Prophet before Abu Jahl? who was it? who was the first person? I'll give you a hint, his name is in the Qur'an Abu Lahab but Abu Lahab is Hamza's brother it's different <laughs> right? you know his own uncle insulted him that way a much nastier insult than whatever abu jahal said to him in a very consequential time but that's different cuz he's his uncle he's our family but you abu jahal from banu Makhzum don't you dare stay back and don't your heart even if you believe in some other you know way right if you believe in god as having partners or whatever it is but ask god alone say oh god if this is the truth guide me to it and watch what happens to your heart as a result of that, right? So the Prophet told Hamza to do just that, and who prayed on it, he thought about it, and he said to the Prophet وسلم, I testify that you are telling the truth, and he said go ahead and proclaim your religion open, go ahead and show your religion to the people, oh my, my nephew, I will support you. Subhanallah, it is it's really amazing. And then he says to the Prophet, the whole I wouldn't want the whole world if it meant that I would return to my first deen, meaning the religion of polytheism. So now Islam is precious to me. I know you're telling the truth. I believe in your religion. Iman settled in my heart. Faith and guidance has settled in my heart. So he says to the Prophet, go out and proclaim your religion, I will protect you. Now now I have your back. Can you imagine how dumb Abu Jahl felt when he heard this? And this is when the scholars of sirah actually mentioned there was a turning point. That before Hamza ta'ala anhu accepted Islam, there was never any real negotiation with the Prophet But after Hamza accepted Islam Now there was the talk of negotiating with the Prophet وسلم, Trying to compromise with him because They knew If a battle were to break out between the Muslims and them Hamza would surely cause a bloodbath They didn't want anything to do with this man In battle and in war So things did indeed change This is also when the scholars mentioned the ayah, idfa' bil-latihiyya ahsan fa-idha alladhi bainaka wa bainahu a'dawatun ka'annahu waliun hamim Reminding the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam wa-man ahsan wa qawlan mimman da'aa ila Allah wa amila salihan wa qala innani minal muslimin The verses, right? The, the best person who is better in speech than the one who who uh, who works righteous deeds and who believes in Allah and says that I am from the Muslims Fast forward all the way to where Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, idfa' bil-latihiyya ahsan Persist on your ways of good. Respond to evil with that which is better, and you will find that even your enemies will become your protective allies. The ulama mentioned that this verse came down after the Islam of Hamza and as a glad tidings of the Islam of Umar ibn Khattab. That if you think this is big, someone even greater than this is about to come to you soon. Right, so this is the first of that class of powerful men that are embracing Islam. Someone else is around the corner and that is Umar ibn Khattab. So in Mecca, uh, we don't know much about his life. It seems he continued his ways for the most part. He continued to hunt, he continued to uh, be who he was. But at the same time, he became from the regulars of Darul Arqam. Okay, so he, he became a student of the Prophet a student of the Quran, he would go to Dar al-Arqam, he would study with the early Muslims when anyone would come he was the de facto guard of Dar al-Arqam, so if there was a knock on the door or some noise outside, Hamza stood up, he pulled out his bow, he pulled out his sword and that was their protection, it was the expectation that Hamza was going to be the guardian of the Muslims in these early days. Now what we do know is that you find Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu playing this role with the Prophet particularly once they make the hijrah and they go to Medina and when the actual battles start. When the actual battles start. And SubhanAllah it's actually narrated that before the hijrah, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, you know people were trying to leave quietly, right? Hamza radiallahu anhu wanted one final go at the people of Mecca so he actually went out to the Kaaba and he announced, he said, if anyone wants to fight, I'm here. Anyone want to go for one more duel before I make my way to Medina and make the hijrah? So while others were trying to you know, escape the persecution, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu was going out and calling out to see if anyone wanted one final uh, battle, one final fight in Mecca before he goes out. Nobody nobody accepted the call of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu to fight him. They didn't even try to crowd him at the time. They just said, you know what, let him go. They make the hijrah. Uh, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu was paired off with, or he stayed in the house of Kulthum ibn al-Hadm radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who we will one day talk about insha'Allah ta'ala, but one of the nobles of the Ansar. And the Prophet sallallahu paired him off with, or made him the brother of, someone specific, and that is Zayd ibn al-Haritha radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now Zayd, of course, is from Mecca like him but they would live together and they were like brothers because, remember, Zayd was, at that time, you know, the adopted son of the Prophet Sallallahu the beloved one of the Prophet Sallallahu so he was from, from the same family. And so Hamza and Zayd rode together. And in fact, we'll find that a few things come out of this. One, remember in the Battle of Badr, they didn't have horses. They weren't prepared for a full-out battle. So Hamza and Zayd were actually sharing the same she-camel on the day of Badr. We also see that Hamza ta'ala anhu entrusted Zaid with his wasaya, with his will and with his inheritance so he, especially before the battles, would tell Zaid what he wanted to happen after he passed away and he was always prepared uh, for that moment when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would take his life. The Prophet ﷺ, however, did not just count him in that regard, right? This is his brother, this is his uncle, this is the first of the powerful to embrace Islam. He is certainly a warrior. The Prophet ﷺ also considered him to be one of his closest advisors, said that the Prophet ﷺ had 14 advisors amongst whom was Hamza ta'ala anhu, in the early period in Al-Madinah. Now what was the first battle of Hamza? Close, But prior to Badr there were two expeditions or potential skirmishes that would take place. And if you were to list the firsts in regards to Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the Prophet entrusted Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu as the first general of Islam, the first flag bearer of Islam in both expeditions prior to the Battle of Badr. What is this referring to? Of course, once they were in Medina, the people of Mecca stole all of their belongings, raided whatever they left behind and their families and they stole their belongings. So the Prophet ﷺ allowed for attacks on some of the caravans to try to take back what was stolen from them in Mecca. Right? So the first one of those, the Prophet ﷺ sent Hamza ta'ala anhu to lead a group of the Sahaba on the first raid against Quraysh. And so it was 30 of them, and they intercepted one of the caravans as it was heading to Asham, as it was heading to uh, greater uh, Syria. And Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu had 30 men with him. Abu Jahl happened to be in that particular caravan going to Asham, and they had 300. Hamza radiallahu anhu didn't care. He said, We're going to fight all 300 of them. Okay? Now, what ends up happening is that as Hamza ta'ala anhu comes forth, the first general of Islam, the first one to lead a raid commissioned by the Prophet and Abu Jahl prepares his man to fight back, there was a man who was there by the name of Majid ibn Amr al-Juhani who intervened between them, and this was in his area, it was in the Juhayna territory, and he, he was someone that was considered an ally to both sides. From a tribal perspective, he had a good relationship with Banu Hashim, he had a good relationship with Banu Makhzum, he was in good standing with the Prophet good standing with Mecca, good standing with Medina. So he basically separated between them and made peace between them and set them both on their way. So Abu Jahl the caravan continued to Ash-Sham, Hamza <laughs> out of respect for this man, he turned around with those 30 men and they came back to Al-Medina. A second time was al Abwa. And this time in Al Abwa, the Prophet himself went out, by the way, in this expedition, which is significant because the first one the Prophet went out in. But guess who the general was and holding the flag? Hamza. So his position is very clear as the lead in all of these situations, right? So Hamza leads. However, uh, there was no actual battle that would take place in Al Abwa. However, the expedition went out to uh, Al Abwa now comes the battle of Badr. So what did it look like to see Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu in war? Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, you can imagine, he wanted to fight the Meccans way before this. He was ready. And Hamza radiallahu anhu had this feather from an ostrich. He, you know, he hunted these exotic animals, right? So you know people that keep their uh, souvenirs. Right? The, the, the different animals. I'm not saying there was a deer head in the, in the home of Hamza anhu or something like that. Uh, I know in Texas this is very appealing to some of you, okay? But Hamza anhu had this exotic feather of an ostrich and he put it on his chest. He pin it sometimes to his helmet, sometimes to his chest. And what it signified was, if anyone wants to battle, come fight me. Like, you know, when you're in battle, you're, you're, you're wearing pretty much the same thing, you're trying to kind of hide yourself amongst the ranks. Hamza <laughs> anhu, to him it was, come at me. Right? I want to fight and I'm not hiding from you. And this was a sign, they said, of his shuja'ah, of his courage, that he would wear something so distinctive and, and, and hold himself out uh, before battle. Hamza <laughs> anhu was also one of those who could fight with two swords. Now if you uh, carry the swords of those people, <laughs> you know for us these days it's like to carry one of them takes two hands and you fall. Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu could, could wield both swords in battle and this was one of his skills that he could fight with two swords in one battle. And he had uh, you know, uh, control with both of his arms. So they go out to the battle of Badr. Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the first general of Islam, uh, carrying the flag, Clearly the Prophet Sallallahu is organizing the army in a way that Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu is the lead and before the battle started there was a name by the name of Al Aswad ibn Abdul Asad uh, and he was from the tribe of Abu Jahl, he's from the other side Al Aswad ibn Abdul Asad and he swore that he was going to walk right through the Muslims and he was going to drink from the well of Badr, arrogant man from the tribe of Makhzum, from Abu Jaha's tribe, as a means of taunting the Muslims, because the Muslims had occupied the wells of Badr. Now, realize the Muslims were not expecting the large army that was coming in Badr. Badr was not looking good for them. They didn't have the animals of war. They didn't have their proper weapons. They really were not ready, but they knew that this huge army was coming to get them with all of their animals, with all of their weapons. So they occupied the wells of Badr strategically. Right? Al-Aswad ibn Abdul al said, I'm going to go and drink from the, uh, the well of the Muslims or uh, I'll, I'll destroy it or, or I'll die for it. So I'm going to plow right through them and I'm going to go ahead and drink from their, their well to taunt them because no one's going to fight me. He was wrong. Hamza radiallahu <laughs> ta'ala anhu immediately when he came through, he came out in front of them, he sliced his legs and he killed them. So this is actually the first man to die in the Battle of Badr and Hamza was not scared of him at all, right? Threw him back like whatever. You know, we are not intimidated, we're not afraid of you. So Hamza was the first to strike on the day of Al-Badr. At that point, Utbah bin Rabi'ah, he comes out and he has his brother uh, Shaybah, of course, and they call out and they say, uh, you know, send us, send us three that are going to to fight us. Okay, send us your three best men. Three of the Ansar came out to fight them, to duel before the battle. And he said, you know, of course, referring to himself, uh, Utbah, uh, uh, Shaybah, and uh, Tu'ima ibn Adi, he said, you know what? Uh, These three men are not equivalent to us. Send us some more noble people. Hamza comes out, Ali and Ubaidah ibn al-Harith. And uh, Utbah says, he calls out and he says, who are you? And this was Hamza himself who responded and he said, I am the uncle of the Prophet Asadullah wa I am the Lion of Allah and His Messenger. You know in battle these things are permissible, right? People uh, show their strength in battle and, they, and, and before their duels, this is permissible. So Hamza radiallahu anhu says, I am the Lion of Allah and the Lion of His Messenger. And Utbah, he says, a noble and worthy opponent. You know, I can fight you. Uh, at least they didn't send three other people, so they're sending their best from the very beginning, which shows that they're serious about this battle. Of course, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu kills him. Ali ta'ala anhu kills Shayba. Ubaid ibn al-Harith kills tu'ayma but at the same time, Ubaid ibn al-Harith was wounded and he would die uh, later on uh, as a result of that, uh, that battle. Uh, I'm sorry, al walid ibn Utbah, I was trying to think about who the third person was, so it was al walid ibn Utbah who was fighting. So anyway, the Battle of Badr then ensues. We know that Hamza was extremely brave and the Battle of Badr was of course a decisive victory for the Muslims and of course they derived a confidence after seeing these three men fight and duel with the other three uh, prior to the battle uh, even starting. However, this made Hamza radiallahu ta'ala, anhu a key person, a key target for whatever battle was going to come after Badr. When the people got back to Mecca and they had lost some of their elders, Abu Jahl, Utbah, right? Umayyah, these, these huge names amongst the mushrikeen, amongst the disbelievers died in the battle of, uh, of Badr. The poetry that would come out of Mecca the environment of Mecca, the widows and the daughters and the sons and the way that people were fuming in Mecca to get revenge from the Muslims for their casualties in the Battle of Badr. And if you think about this SubhanAllah, these people, they didn't have akhirah, they didn't have any notion of the hereafter, they didn't have any notion of Shahada or martyrdom or anything like that, right? So this was all that they had was their pride and this was a huge blow to their ego. Everything we persecuted the muslims for for all 13 years and then we lost our leaders Our heads in this battle of badr where we were supposed to rout them And this of course is especially with Hind bint Rutba Utba, who was killed by Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Hind bint Utbah was fantasizing About what she would do to Hamza radiallahu ta'ala the body, the, the, the way she would mutilate his body all of the harm that she would commit, she was talking about it, she was authoring lines of poetry, to the point that it became, a, it became an obsession for her to get revenge on Hamza ta'ala anhu, for what he had done to her father Utbah. And you have to know that with the battle of Uhud, they didn't just come out with their larger army and their more prepared cavalry and what they were brewing inside of them, of hatred and, and the desire for vengeance and revenge. They also came with the women folk of, with the woman folk of Mecca. And so the wives, the widows, the daughters came forth. So Hind comes out, um, the wife of Ikram ibn Abi Jahal, uh, Fatima bin Twalid, the daughter of, of Mas'ud al-Thaqafi, the wife of Amr ibn as the mother of Mus'ab ibn Umayn, all these enemies, right, the women folk came out too, and they had these lines of poetry, they were singing, all of these verses about vengeance, right? And they, had, they even had extra animals with the wine because they wanted to celebrate over the corpses of the Muslims. So they're coming back to Medina actually for Uhud with a vengeance, and particularly, they wanted to, uh, they wanted to, to, to really mutilate uh, the Muslims. They didn't just want to defeat them. They wanted to mutilate them after the defeat. So the Battle of Uhud starts to take place in the beginning of the battle, I know that some of you might, you know, we all know the death of Hamza in the battle of Uhud, right? But what you probably don't know is that before he died, he actually was, you know, he actually killed many of the enemy. Okay so when the battle first started, uh, one of the people that he killed was a a man by the name of Suba' bint Abdul Uzza, Suba' bint Abdul Uzza, who was considered one of the strongest of Quraysh, Hamza who killed him with two blows, and the narrations Mention that up to two-thirds of the casualties on the other side on the day of Uhud Were from the hands of Hamza Subhanallah, what a way to go out Right, up to 30 or 31 people Hamza would kill before he was killed by the spear of Wahshi. So Hamza comes out and Hamza does what Hamza does and of course we know that in Uhud the Muslims had the upper hand; they had the victory. So, how did he die? Wahshi bin Harub, of course, was a was was a slave of Jubair ibn Mutar. and Jubair freed him on the condition that he would kill. Hamza ta'ala anhu and Hind offered him a specific compensation for the murder of Hamza ta'ala anhu, to kill him and to cut out his liver so that Hind could chew it and spit it out. They wanted to make an example out of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Wahshi described the moment and the Abyssinians particularly were known for their spear play. Actually subhanAllah even when you look at the narrations about Eid when, when Aisha and the Prophet would watch the Abyssinian Muslims They had the spears that they would practice with and so Wahshi was a specialist with his spear and he had a particular spear That he, w- he was known to, to really use very well Wahshi described the moment He said that I went out on the day of Uhud and I hid behind this boulder and I wasn't involved in the rest of the battle. I literally just kept my eyes on Hamza and I waited for something to be exposed of him. I waited for the first moment where I could kill him. And SubhanAllah, he says that, he, you know, I saw him roaring like a lion through the battle and demolishing the enemy. He said, until after he killed Ibn Abdul Uzza, who we talked about, he said that his armor was raised just a little bit to where some of his lower abdomen was exposed. So I said, there's my opportunity. So Wahshi said, I looked at him, and then I pinpointed him, and then I threw my spear at him, and it went right through his body, through his lower abdomen. So it actually went through him. And he says Hamza was so strong, that he got up and he still pursued me even as the spear was through his body. SubhanAllah, he was still able to pick up his sword and come after me even with the spear through his body until eventually he succumbed to the wound and he passed away, radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, the master of the shuhada, Sayyid al-Shuhada. Now, of course, this is a difficult, difficult thing for the Prophet وسلم, as it is to lose someone like Hamza is not easy. He's definitely at the chief of the casualties that would die on the day of Uhud and of course they were a little over 70, about 72 or 73 people that died in Uhud from the Muslims amongst them Hamza and of course Abdullah ibn ibn, uh, ibn Jahsh and uh, Mus'ab ibn Umair and some of the, the noble, some of the most well-known sahaba that passed away in the day of Uhud, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, is the chief of those martyrs and he's the chief of all martyrs of all time, all of the shuhada will line up behind him on the day of judgment. It's hard enough to lose Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, but of course, uh, beyond that, after the battle was over and and, and because of what had taken place where the archers left their position and the Prophet uh, went up into the mountain of Uhud, so the battlefield itself was relinquished to them to celebrate, to claim the battlefield at that point where the Muslims had fled or they'd gone up into the mountain. They then started to make an example, they started to mutilate the bodies of the shuhada. It wasn't just Hamza, by the way but it was all of them that they started to cut off their ears, they started to cut their noses, they started to do things to their bodies, nasty things to their bodies, celebrating with their wine, chanting their poetry, all you know, these, these horrific things that they were doing to them, right, as, as their moment of gloating. This is all they have is this dunya, they're sick, sick in the heart at this point, right? Diseased people. And Hind, in particular, asks, for the liver of Hamza to be cut out where she would chew it and she would spit it out so SubhanAllah after they had finished doing what they did to the bodies then the Muslims come back to the battlefield and the Prophet goes to of course the body of Hamza and the Prophet looks at Hamza and he sees the mutilation of the body of Hamza and they mutilated him all over cut off his limbs you know, did things to him that really were, were a disgusting sight. And Rasulullah looks at Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu and they said that the cry of the Prophet on that day was unlike the cry of the Prophet on any other day. The way he wept over the body of Hamza ta'ala anhu was different from any other weeping. Like that's his uncle, that's his brother, that is someone so near and dear to his heart. But subhanAllah, even then, the Prophet وسلم, immediately, what does he say? He tells the Zubair, do not let Safiya see this sight. Go stop your mother from coming to see this sight. SubhanAllah, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam knows if I can't bear this sight, right? If this sight is, is hurting me so much, then Safiya, what's his sister going to do? What's my aunt going to do? So he sends Zubayr radiallahu ta'ala says go stop Safiyyah from seeing that sight. Safiyyah is marching forward to Uhud. She's yelling at the Sahaba that fled. Calling them names, she's saying, Did you leave the Prophet? Did you leave Hamza? What happened? Why did you leave them? And as she is marching and marching, as Zubair is trying to stop his mom, and she's going straight forward and she's looking for Hamza. And Zubair doesn't know what to do. And finally, Zubair says, Ya, Ummah, oh my mother, this was an order from the Prophet. So then she stops. Right? And that's when she says, What happened to Hamza? And Zubair tells Safiya, radiallahu ta'ala anha, that Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu has been killed. Safiyya radiallahu ta'ala anha has these two clots, right? She anticipated something was wrong, so she sends these two clots back with a Zubair to shroud Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Zubair makes his way back to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa with these two clots to shroud Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is crying over the body of Hamza. عنه, and he says عليه الصلاة والسلام رحمك الله يا عمّاه رحمك الله يا عمّا. may Allah have mercy on you, oh my uncle. and the Prophet starts to praise him. and the first thing he says you were always one who enjoined the ties of kinship. you brought us together. you loved your family. you brought us together. فعولا للخيرات. and someone who was always, you know. When you say fa'al, fa'ul, like he's always doing khair You were always doing good, always at the forefront of good. And Rasulullah says, had it not been for the grief of Safiyyah, like if, if, if I wasn't worried about Safiyyah seeing your body, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, I would have preferred to leave you so that the, the birds would consume you instead, and then Allah brings you back on the day of judgment. Meaning like this sight, I'd rather, you know, this dignity of the, the birds, taking your, your flesh, but Allah will gather you certainly on the Day of Judgment, but I don't want to leave you out for too long because I don't want Safiya to see what I'm seeing. SubhanAllah, so Rasulullah was truly worried about the sister seeing Hamza ta'ala, anhu, as much as uh, he cried for him. By that time, uh, Zubair came holding the two shrouds for Hamza when and the people were shrouding their dead. Just as the Prophet was about to shroud him, there was an Ansari man next to Hamza عنه, who didn't have anything to cover his body. So the Prophet وسلم, took one shroud and he shrouded Hamza, and he could not shroud the entire body of Hamza like Mus'ab when we'll talk about him. And he shrouded Hamza with one, covered the bottom half, and he covered the bottom half of this Ansari man that was next to him. And then the Prophet, وسلم, um, of course, uh, started to uh, lead the janazah. And there's all types of different narrations about the janazah of Hamza and the shuhada of Uhud. How would have a janazah taken place? Did it take place? How many takbirat? How many you know, janazahs did he pray? And one thing about Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that's narrated is that the Prophet وسلم, when, he, when he prayed upon Hamza, he did multiple takbirat beyond what is usually done in the janazah. This is something we see narrated authentically about Abu Salama, by the way. Prophet did nine takbirat in the Janazah of Abu Salama. What did he say between them? We don't know. But it was unusual. And they say when the Prophet prayed upon Hamza radiallahu anhu, he did up to 70 takbirs. SubhanAllah, you imagine that? Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. As he was praying on Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, some of the narrations suggest that the Prophet prayed ten by ten with the bodies of Uhud, and Hamza was in each one of the Janazas. Like he left his body up there SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam and they kept bringing in the bodies and the Prophet SallAllahu prayed on the bodies of 10 by 10. And then the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi proceeded to, uh, to, to, to bury them. And we know that Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Abdullah were buried separately in a grave and then the rest of them, Mus'ab radiallahu ta'ala anhu and then the Shuhada were buried uh, in accordance with their hifth of Qur'an, how much Qur'an they memorized. The Prophet SallAllahu buried them in that in that order, in that fashion by the hifth of the Qur'an, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from the people of the Qur'an. Allahumma ameen. Now there are a few things to be mentioned here as well. The first is that when the Prophet saw what was done to Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the mutilation, and when the Sahaba saw the way that Quraysh was so shameless in the way they mutilated the bodies of the Muslims in Uhud. Think about their mindset and where they were at the time. We let your captives go in Badr. Right? The Prophet وسلم, let them go in Badr. Not only did he not kill them or mutilate them, he freed them, وسلم, some of them for the, just the ransom of being able to teach Muslims how to read. Like we showed you so much ihsan, so much excellence in Badr, and this is how you repay us. You mutilate our deceased, so it was—it was a sign of the ethical disparity, right, between the Muslims and their opponents in this regard. And so, some of the Ansar at that moment started to swear that they will mutilate the bodies of the people of Mecca. That not only will we get revenge, but we will do—we will uh, make an example of them, as they made an example of our loved ones. And the Prophet Sallallahu who was looking at the body of Hamza رضي الله تعالى عنه قال لأمثلن بسبعين منهم the Prophet صلى said in that moment of hurt and pain as he was crying over the body of Hamza رضي الله تعالى عنه, that I will make an example of 70 of them the way they made an example of 70 of us I will make an example of 70 of them Allah عز wa جل sends Jibreel عليه السلام to the Prophet صلى in those difficult moments Surah al النحل verse 126 wa in aaqabtum faaaqibu bimithli maa uqibtum bihi wa la in sabartum lahuwa khairun lakum wasbir wa ma sabarak illaa billah subhanallah jibril islam comes to the prophet sai some of these verses if you retaliate then let your retaliation only be equivalent to what you have suffered but if you patiently endure if you show sabr then that is certainly best for those who show sabr Wasbir وَمَا illa بِاللَّهِ Allah telling the Prophet, ﷺ, be patient. And where are you going to derive that patience from? Allah. You'll derive it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ya Rasulullah don't do to them what they did to yours. SubhanAllah, maintain the moral high ground. Maintain the ethical high ground over these people. And the Prophet ﷺ responded, and he said, I will be patient, inshallah. SubhanAllah, and that's why in Fatih Makkah, the same people who mutilated their own. In Uhud, they're at the mercy of the Prophet in Mecca. SubhanAllah, what could he have done to them? Right? And justifiably, remember what you mutilated us in our city in Medina? Well, we're back now, and you're at the mercy of the Prophet. And so now it can be done to you in the same way you did it to our loved ones. Think about the emotions, right? The Prophet said, No, I'm going to be patient. So that's the first thing, this incident at the death of Hamza. The other thing, subhanAllah, about the death of Hamza and what it did to the city of Medina at the time. When they all went back to Medina after Uhud. Everybody in Medina had a deceased person from Uhud, right? Everyone had a relative that was killed in Uhud in some way. So everyone in Medina was crying and there was a particular thing called the niyaha, which was the wailing ceremonies, the mourning that that the women would do in particular in Medina mourning over the deceased and the Prophet وسلم, was walking the streets of Medina and he sees the crying of, and the wailing of the women in Medina and the men as well in their niyaha, in their grief over what has happened and the Prophet وسلم, he puts his head down and he says you cry over your dead ones he said Ammi Hamza." My uncle, la bawaakiyah lahu There's no one to cry over him. Like subhanAllah, his sadness, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. All these families in Medina are gathered and they're all crying over their deceased ones. He said, but my uncle Hamza, who the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa cried more for than anyone that they'd ever seen, right? The way he cried over Hamza was the deep cry. They said the weeping of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when Hamza was massacred, when he was murdered that way. So he said, Hamza has no one to cry over him. So what did they do in Medina? They went all around the Prophet's house and they started to loudly wail out of their love for the Prophet SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. Like think about their love for the Messenger sallam. like, like we, we, we ignored him while we were crying over our own. We forgot that he lost his uncle in this battle and he doesn't have his family with him Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam you know, it's, it's different And so they all went in front of the house of the Prophet Sallallahu and they started to cry and mourn, and weep and this is when the hukum, the ruling of al had the prohibition of mourning, uh, wailing out loud came down only after the death of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. wailing is to shout, to cry loudly at the death of a person so Hamza was the last person that this would be allowed for. After that, the prohibition came down, that there is no niyaha, there is no wailing at the time of death over a person. And the Prophet said, Sayyid al Shuhada' Ya'indallahi yawm al-Qiyamah, Hamza bin abdul al-Muttalib." As we said, it is an authentic hadith about him. ta'ala anhu. And Rasulullah would visit the Shuhada' of Uhud. And by the way, he would pray janazah on the Shuhada' of Uhud multiple times. There's a ruling in this that if I miss the janazah of a person and I wanted to attend the janazah and I go there later, can I pray janazah? Yes, you can. Days after? Yes. Weeks after, yes. The Prophet ﷺ was still praying Janazah on the Shuhadab Uhud, years later. He went out and he prayed Janazah on them again. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So how many jana's did the Prophet ﷺ perform on Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu and the Shuhadab uhud? And the Prophet ﷺ would point to them and he would say, Ana shahidun ala ha'ula. I'm a witness upon these people. I am their witness on the Day of Judgment, SubhanAllah, these amazing human beings. And when the Prophet ﷺ was about to die, he went out to visit Hamza ta'ala anhu and the Shuhda one last time and he prayed upon them one last time and then he went to the Baqeer next to him where the Sahaba were buried and then the Prophet ﷺ went to his home where the sickness would, would, uh, would become severe and he would pass away. And so this is Hamza and the place that he has in Islam and the person that he was. Now SubhanAllah, I know I'm going for a very long time, but I want to mention a few things here in conclusion. Number one, one of the amazing things about this is that Wahshi, the one who threw the spear to kill Hamza and Hind, the one who cut open the chest and chewed his liver, Both became Muslim. Both became Muslim. And their Islam was described as being outstanding. So they didn't just become Muslim, they actually became pious people. Think about that. Alright. Hind, the Prophet forgave her right away when he went back to Mecca and Fatah Mecca. She was afraid. How am I going to approach the Prophet when I caused him that much pain? How am I going to seek his forgiveness? She sought the forgiveness from the Prophet ﷺ and Rasulullah ﷺ forgave her. And Hind uh, went on and she became a pious Muslim woman. Wahshi, and in fact, there was a narration about Hind coming to the Prophet ﷺ and complaining that Abu Sufyan was cheap with her. <laughs> and the Prophet ﷺ said, To take from his wealth, but do not exceed what you need. Right when you take from his wealth. So the Prophet even showing her lenience and, and the Prophet speaking to her with ihsan, with excellence and helping her in her situation, she became a pious Muslim woman. Wahshi became a pious Muslim man. And there's a narration about Wahshi, which is very interesting because sometimes the way the stories were told, subhanAllah, in and of itself is a lesson for us. It's an authentic narration, it's a long narration from Ja'far ibn Amr ibn umayyah he said, I went out with Abdullah ibn Adi and we reached a town of Al-Hams, Wahshi, radiyallahu anhu, settled in Al-Hams in Syria, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala free it. Became a great mujahid in Islam, a great warrior in Islam. And he said, we went out to uh, Al-Hams and we were asking about the Sahaba, their tabi'een. So we asked, where is Wahshi? So they pointed to where Wahshi lives and they said, we want to go ask him about the killing of Hamza I mean, he is marked forever in Islam as that person, right? So they went to Wahshi, and they they went up to him, and they said he was in the shade of his home as if it was a full water skin, like he was, subhanAllah, staying in his shade. He was, you know, really away from the people, but he was residing in his own element, in his own system, right? This was a man anhu that had moved on from taking the life of someone very precious to the Prophet like some of and the Muslims. So he said, we went up to him and we were a short distance from him. And Ubaidullah was wearing a turban and Wahshi could not see except for his eyes. And then Ubaidullah, he said to me, uh, do you know who I am? O oh, Wahshi. And Wahshi, he looked at him and he said, no, but I know that Adi married a woman named Um the daughter of Abul As, and she delivered a boy from him in Mecca. And he started to go through it. But the point is, is that, uh, your feet resemble, he said, subhanAllah, he said, I know, it's actually fascinating, I know that Adi married a woman called Um Qital, the daughter of Abul As, and she delivered a boy from him, for him in Mecca, and I was the one that looked for a nurse for that boy in Mecca, and your feet look like his feet. <laughs> That's how sharp Wahshi was. I remember the feet of a baby that I carried in Mecca a long time ago, and your feet looked like that baby's feet. So Ubaidullah, he, covered his, he uncovered his face and he said, that's me. So he said, can you tell me the story of how Hamza radiallahu anhu was killed? And Wahsi starts to recount to them the moment that he killed Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and particularly how the Prophet had asked him to describe how Hamza died and the Prophet was so hurt that the Prophet could not even look at the face of Wahshi he forgave him, he accepted his Islam but he couldn't even look at his face so Wahshi says I lived with that pain I lived knowing that I caused that hurt to the Prophet <laughs> imagine like how am I going to recover from this I caused him so much pain and the Prophet couldn't look at my face because he remembered the murder of Hamza anhu when he looked at me he forgave me but it was hard for the Prophet to look at me so he said until the Khilaf of Abu Bakr he said, I went out and I took that same spear that I killed Hamza with and I marked Musaylam al kadhab the false prophet, the man who killed so many hafad of the Qur'an, this wicked man. And he said, I went in the battle and I marked him and I threw the spear at him, the same spear I killed, I threw Hamza at Hamza. Anhu, and I went right through Musaylam al kadhab and I said, one for one, قَتَلْتُ خَيْرَ nas I killed the best of people and then I killed the worst of people, subhanAllah. Some of the sahaba, some of the ulama, they said, and We thought about that verse. Say, oh my servants who have transgressed against themselves, don't despair from the mercy of Allah. When you saw Wahshi, you thought about that verse. How do you recover from murdering Hamza radiAllahu ta'ala anhu? Look what Wahshi did. He took it as motivation to kill the man who was an enemy to the Muslims that caused so much harm to the Muslims, the false prophet Musaylama al kadha And this hadith, where the Prophet ﷺ, I mentioned this hadith some time ago, that Allah laughs at two people who meet in Jannah. One of them killed the other. SubhanAllah, you imagine a person meets his murderer in Jannah. Imagine Hamza radiAllahu ta'ala anhu in Jannah, Sayyid al-Shuhada seeing Wahshi and Hind in Jannah. How did this happen? SubhanAllah, how did this happen? But that shows you the redemption of al Islam that Allah subhanahu wa Taala gave in the mercy of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi to these people the mercy Allah showed them through the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So if you're thinking will Allah ever forgive me? Did you commit that deed? SubhanAllah, who do you think is, is has a harder sin the one who killed 99 and then hundred people from Bani Israel or the one who took one Hamza? And somehow he redeemed himself. And guess who led the janazah of both Hind and Wahshi? Umar ibn Khattab. Subhanallah. Both of them passed away and Umar led their janazahs. So, subhanallah, I mean, a, a, an incredible story of Hamza, عنه, but there's something about this that Hamza died so that Islam could live. He cared about Islam. He cared about Islam living after him and going forward. Hamza was not in this for the arrogance of it, the pride of it. No, it was because Iman had settled firmly in his heart. Look what Allah gave to Hamza. And look at the mercy of Allah, that there is redemption even for Hind bint Utbah and Wahshi ibn Harb. The last thing I'll say, by the way, is that there's a narration, even though there's some weakness in the narration, uh, that Jabir ibn Abdullah mentions that a person came in the presence of the Prophet And he had a son, and he asked the Prophet what he should name his son, and the Prophet said, You should name him Hamza. So, all the Hamzas in here, be proud. (laughs) Alhamdulillah. Your parents did you right. And for those of you that are expecting, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you a Hamza that also resembles Hamza. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to love these Sahaba and to be joined with these Sahaba, these Shuhada, these Sabiqoon, these Awaloon. SubhanAllah, He is a first, a companion the leader of the martyrs the master of the martyrs may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala join us with our beloved messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and these beloved people allahumma amin Allah Khayra. we won't be able to take questions this week because of adhan but inshallah ta'ala next week we will subhanak allahumma hamdaka ashhadu an la astaghfiruka wa atubu wa sallallahu ala muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh